Hi guys, welcome to the Alternative Podcast. We're on episode 25. Um, we've got a special guest here today, Alex. He's a fellow YouTuber with the YouTube channel Pike Productions. Um, Alex, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your YouTube channel, what your motivations are for the channel and why you set it up? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, uh, first, Cam and Aaron, thanks for having me here. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I've checked out your guys' podcast, and I really like the previous guests that you had, so I uh, do consider it a high compliment that uh, you invited me, so thanks for that. Cheers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as far as my YouTube channel, I kind of got into video editing about three or four years ago. I was actually doing uh, uh, gardening consulting uh, with clients, and I found that, you know, it's a lot easier to teach them how to garden with a video as opposed to an email. So I started with that, really fell in love with the video editing process, uh, but quickly found out there was really no way to grow a, a gardening YouTube channel. It's just too regionally specific, you know, different cli- uh, climates, different soil types. Uh, people want to grow different stuff. So while I enjoyed it, I saw that there was really uh, not a viable future in it. So... Made some life changes about three years ago. I really positioned myself so I could start earning money online. And I did that mostly through content writing. I got accepted into a writing agency where they kind of pair you with clients. And I got to write about all types of boring stuff from manufacturing to building construction codes. Uh, But through that, I was able to earn an income remotely. And that allowed me to start traveling the world. So... About three years ago, I went to the Dominican Republic. That was kind of the start of my digital nomad journey. Uh, Pretty close to the United States. I know a little bit of Spanish, enough to get by. So I figured that was a a great place to start. And I was doing the content writing to make money and then also focusing on the YouTube channel uh, to hopefully get that growing. And while I was in the Dominican Republic, I really lucked out. I met... uh, really interesting person by the name of Hugh Baver. Uh, He was very successful in in the tech industry in the United States, uh, but he ended up abandoning that to work on charity efforts in the Dominican Republic. Uh, He's involved in a few different ones and uh, he was really kind because at that time I wanted to do a video about him and the charities he was working on. And I had absolutely no audience on YouTube. Uh, nobody was watching my stuff at that time, but despite that, he, uh, took out the time of his busy schedule to allow me to kind of document, uh, what he was doing. And we talked about Dominican history and, uh, kind of the challenges that the Dominican Republic is facing. Uh, so yeah, I stayed there for about four or five months, I would say, give or take. And then... Uh, Joe Biden got elected and he took the White House and I was a little afraid that he was going to close the U.S. borders uh, because this was all during the pandemic. Uh, I met many, many Canadians who ended up getting stranded in the Dominican Republic due to uh, travel restrictions. Uh, You know, they just intended to go there for a week for a vacation or spend the winter there. And then they ended up spending about a year year or two there. (laughs) So uh, I was able to get back home to the U.S. That didn't end up happening to me. Uh, 
And then the jabs became available. And then once that happened, travel opened up again. Uh, so when that happened, I went to Poland uh, to a city there called Poznan. Uh, my grandfather, uh, God rest his soul, he actually grew up in a Polish-speaking household. And uh, my great-grandparents are from Poland, so I've always wanted to visit there. Uh, wish I could have done it when he was still alive, because he could have helped me with the Polish language a little bit. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, was able to go there. Uh, <laughs> and quickly learned that Europeans are just as bad as ge at geography as Americans are. Uh, <laughs> so that was pretty interesting to see. Um, uh, most people I talked to, they thought the Dominican Republic is in South America. So uh, that gave me a good chuckle. Um, and after Poland, I went to Albania. And I absolutely love Albania. I think it's one of the most underrated countries in the world uh just fantastic geography there i mean you can go swimming in the sea and hiking in the snow in the same day so there's uh really spectacular things to see there uh also amazing archaeological sites as well as well uh but unlike greece and athens and albania all these fantastic archaeological sites they're almost empty there's almost nobody there so you can just go and really uh, connect to the history. Um, and two, while I was there, that's when the Ukraine war started. Uh, definitely changed my plans. You know, I knew I was going to be bouncing around Eastern Europe outside of the Schengen area uh, for a while, but the war kind of changed things. And I was actually even uh, looking at going to Ukraine before that started because uh, they had a kind of a unique COVID insurance thing in order for tourists to go there. You had to buy COVID insurance, but obviously that's all a meat point now. Um, and so, and also in Albania, some of my uh, friends there, they actually, before the war started, they helped Ukrainians, uh, what is it, like meet the immigration requirements so they could stay there and uh while Albania is a great country, there, there's still quite a bit of bribery there. So uh, my friends knew what bribes had to be made so that Ukrainians could stay there. <laughs> um, so yeah, after Albania, I then went to Athens uh, and I was there for about a month and I was really on the north end of the city. Uh, I didn't know this at the time, but I guess Athens is kind of divided into political neighborhoods. So there's like the anarchist neighborhood and, and there's the communist neighborhood and the fascist neighborhood. Uh, and I ended up right next to the anarchist neighborhood, just completely by accident. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to see. Uh, like what they do there is they kind of take over uh, abandoned buildings and then they spray paint saying this belongs to the anarchists now. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see uh, those political dynamics in a big city. And, and in Athens, too, I learned a lot, or not a lot, but a little bit about the uh, the Greek Civil War, which I guess happened uh, immediately after World War II. And it was kind of your classic uh, left versus right, what you, what you would expect, you know, in the 20th century. Uh, but I guess it got so ugly there that they the Greeks really don't like to talk about it. And I guess most schools, when they talk about history... Uh, the Civil War isn't taught because they 
don't want to kind of reignite the flames that contributed to that. And uh, some of the Greek villages, this is what I've been told, you know, even if they have a really small population of just about 500 or 1000 people, they'll still have two cafes there. Not that, that way there's one cafe for the left wing and one cafe for the right wing. So the wounds are still so fresh. They don't even want to sit in the same coffee shop as someone on the other side, even a, in a tiny remote village. Did you um, notice any clashes between the different neighborhoods? So you said you was uh, near the anarchist neighborhood. Would the anarchist clash with the communists? Uh, not at that time. It was pretty calm when I was there. Uh, this was, oh gosh, I want to say May of 2022. So I think everybody was really excited that the pandemic was getting over. So I think there's kind of more excitement about life returning to normal instead of engaging in uh, political squabbles. Um, there, there was a notable amount of police presence there though too. So, uh, but yeah, from what I saw, things were pretty calm and mellow to compared to other times in Athens that we've seen in uh, the past decade or so. Yeah, it's funny that you say that, the, the divide there. And obviously you mentioned about what you learned in education. From all your traveling, and obviously you've done quite a lot of, uh, well, obviously a lot of traveling, but you've documented a lot of your traveling, and it seems like you've learned a lot from your traveling. How different do you find what you learn in school and in education how different is it to what it is actually in the real world? Oh, very different. Um, well, gosh, I mean, I would say at least part of the education that I received, it, there is very little focus on uh, Eastern Europe uh, and kind of international studies in general. I mean, we did spend quite a bit of time studying about Western Europe. Uh, in the UK as well, just because our legal system, we use the common law legal system like you do, and uh, it's kind of taught in a way that we're a continuation of UK political philosophy. So we talk about you guys quite a bit, but uh, as far as other countries, uh, not so much. Um, but I would say there was uh, a huge discrepancy from kind of media reports and actually being there. Um, and two in uh, Albania, when uh, the war started, energy prices went up and I guess there were protests in Tirana. I was really far away from Tirana, uh, but there were messages on social media saying, is it safe to go to Albania right now? I hear it's rioting. And it's like, I didn't even know there was reports of riots at that time because everything was uh, pretty calm and peaceful. But I guess the media was presenting at that Albania was crumbling and I did not see that at all. I mean, I mean, yeah, I heard people complaining about gas prices and energy prices, but no riots whatsoever. That's funny, isn't it? That's another way of looking at it as well. And you've saw it firsthand what the media are portraying to happen in certain places whilst you're there. Hearing it from fellow sort of Americans back home. Oh and seeing it in, in person. And then I guess, well, I don't know, was you watching the media in these other countries as well to see what they were reporting on? Uh, a little bit, but the language barrier made it really difficult. So <laughs> I, I could watch the news in those countries, but I had no idea what they were saying. So <laughs> yeah, because that's one thing that I've always been interested in is, for example, everything 
that gets said about Russia, for example. What are Russia showing on their TV to their um, to their citizens? Um, we did see one video once, which we brought it on a podcast episode. Must have been about ten episodes ago, but it was basically it was a an advert which was humorous, but it was basically just ripping apart the the agendas that are going ahead in in America at the moment. So it was funny, but it, it's always good to think about that. About well, we're seeing this side. I wonder what they're showing because we can't all, always be 100% truthful in, in, in believing what we're showing. So they're probably playing the same game. So it'll be funny to see how they're sort of twisting what's going on over here in their own way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and, and I did get to see a little bit of that. Uh, my travels did eventually lead me to the Republic of Georgia and this was after the war started and uh, a lot, of, I was in Tbilisi, the capital, and there was a lot of Russians living there uh, who came in from the war. They were, at that point, they were just trying to escape the sanctions. The draft uh, had not started at that point, uh, but it was really interesting talking to them and uh, most of them there, they were uh, pretty critical of Putin and also uh, very critical of uh the Russian media, uh, RT. And there's one Russian YouTuber who did make it to Georgia. Uh, I think his name is Roman. He opens his channel with, this is your friendly neighborhood Russia, Russian, but he does kind of break down uh, how, what Russian media is reporting and kind of the inaccuracies that it has. Um and two, it's interesting too, like I'd make Russian friends and we just have normal casual conversations and then we become friends on Facebook and then they'd be, their Facebook page is very, very anti-Putin political. So it's kind of a, interesting to see. I, I guess they have that same uh, friendliness decorum that we have in the Anglosphere or kind of when you meet somebody for the first time, you just be polite and don't talk about politics, but then you see somebody's social media and, and uh they're pretty active politically. I have no idea if that answered your question. I kind of went on a ramble there. <laughs> no, that was good. Yeah, because that's an, well, another side of it anyway is the people that you talk to. And we're hearing so much of one side. It's good to speak to people and sort of gain in, um, some knowledge in what's actually going on. And I guess that's sort of what we're doing anyway with this podcast in, in another way, completely different way, is we're trying to talk to people rather than well, I guess the information still comes from people, but rather than people who are paid actors, so to speak, we're trying to talk to real people and gain real knowledge of what's going on in the world. And yeah, I guess that's why we like your YouTube channel so much because it it's real. It's just showing one person's experience on multiple different aspects of the world and different, obviously, you've done your video on globalization, which seems to have blown up massively. Um, we hope this podcast episode helps channel some more viewers there, but it's on 1 million views at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and that really blew my mind how successful that video was when I was making it. I mean, there were several times where I thought nobody's going to care about this. Nobody cares about trade and line graphs and, you know, wheat production. This is the type of stuff that puts people to sleep. Uh, but I was very happy to be wrong about that. 
um, and that people did kind of find an interest in it. it and I guess kind of what changed uh, why people are more interested in global trade now than before. I mean, uh, we saw during the pandemic what happens when global supply lines kind of shut down. Uh, pretty much everyone in the world experienced one shortage of a thing or another. And then, of course, right as the pandemic was ending, then the war started. So now we have these completely additional new supply chain uh, shortages and challenges. And I am pretty concerned of where things are going economically uh, from the war, because, you know, once the pandemic ended, it's like, OK, it's just a matter of time until we get the refineries running again and the factories running again and so on and so forth. But. Uh, I really think these sanctions have the potential of staying around for a long time, uh, especially when you kind of look at, at what happened with Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, you know, that was about 60 years ago, and we still have those sanctions on Cuba today. And I think that that's very likely to happen with Russia as well. Uh, you see some people from the U.S. State Department, they're starting to use the uh phrase war crimes or crimes against humanity rather uh and that's pretty serious language once the state department starts using that that usually indicates we're going to be in a very adversarial relationship until there's serious regime change uh and russia's a pretty big player or they were a pretty big player in globalization i mean obviously there is oil and natural gas that kind of has the big headlines right now uh, and also uh, fertilizer production. Uh, with fertilizer, there's three key macronutrients that all crops need. You have your nitrogen, your phosphorus, also sometimes called phosphate, and your potassium, also sometimes called uh, potash. Uh, but in any case, if I remember correctly, Russia's a very big producer of phosphorus, and that becomes pretty critical in crops that uh, produce fruit. And I mean fruit in the botanical sense of the word as opposed to the culinary sense of the word. So uh, any type of crop where a flower turns into something that you eat, uh, you know, that's a, a fruiting crop. Uh, and to most countries, they do have a reserve of uh, all three of those crop macronutrients, including phosphorus, but uh, those will deplete uh, and need to find ways to replenish. And with phosphorus and potassium, that can't be manufactured. It can really only be mined. Uh, nitrogen, you can manufacture. Uh, and those mining expansions, they take several years to set up. Uh, so what I'm saying is that I think uh, food prices are going to remain inflationary for uh, a few years to come, unfortunately. It's funny you mention fruits um, because in the UK at the moment we're seeing a tomato shortage. Oh, you're seeing it's, a what shortage? Uh, tomato shortage or tomato, as you guys say in America. And I imagine most of your to tomatoes, I imagine <laughs> they would get imported from Spain or Italy, someplace warm. Yes, I think Spain, a lot of them come from. Um, we, I think some of them grow here as well, locally in the UK. Um, Italian tomatoes are, or tomatoes are usually more uh, expensive anyway. They're considered more premium. I guess it's because tomato tomatoes are used 
in Italian dishes, so it comes with like a extra little bit of marketing to say they're Italian. You cook in Italian food, pay pay a pound extra on, on every t- six tomatoes that you buy. But also, uh, following on from um, what you said, as Russia being big players in globalization. What I've been um, reading about is the BRIC nations seem to be gaining a closer relationship with each other. So you've got Russia, um, India, China, South Africa, and Brazil. And those countries are massive in um, global production. So if we're starting to see those guys getting close to each other, it just it feels even more of a concern for the West that there's going to be more shortages because these guys are in control of a lot of supply, a lot of the supply chain, global supply chains. Um, I think they've also striking a deal with Saudi Arabia, who obviously provide a lot of um, oil to the world. So if those countries do sort of collectively get together, then they're in, I would feel like they're in a much more powerful position than the West are when it comes to supply in the world with necessities. Uh, I am a little bit suspicious of the BRICS nations. I don't think they get uh, along as well as most people would believe, uh, specifically with India and China. Uh, I mean, those two countries, I think it would be very fair to say that they are adversaries. They have had border clashes uh, fairly recently within the past decade and uh, certainly you can go farther back in history that indicates that they don't get along. Um, and, and two also, yeah, China is a huge player in manufacturing today. I, I don't think that's going to be maintained, uh, but they're also major, major importers of food. Uh, if I recall correctly, only about 25% of their food can be uh, grown domestically. For the rest of it, they rely on imports, and they also do import a lot of fertilizer as well. Uh, so if there was was a major showdown uh, between the West and China, what would happen is we would have a recession, but China would have a famine. Uh, so much higher stakes uh, for China than it would be for us. So yeah, continuing on that thought, yeah, India and China, they don't get along too well. China is much more dependent on the global economy. Uh, they can't go isolationist like uh, some other countries can. Um, so yeah, I see BRICS shifting to being more India-centric instead of China-centric. And as far as people in Western countries like us, I think that's a positive, you know, uh, India is kind of always been neutral between geopolitical uh, conflicts. And I think we could all agree that it would be better that India surpasses China as a major player on the global stage. I guess India would be a nice buffer state between the West and the East. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and to a China, they have really uh, disastrous demographics. Uh, if you look at their, the population pyramid of China, they're getting things are going to look pretty dire for them pretty soon. I believe by 2030, 25% of their population will be of retirement age. Uh, so if you were to, you know, it's a very inverted graph. <laughs> uh, 
and given their human rights records, there are some concerns that they might call the elderly population. I don't know if they would go quite that far. Uh, that sounds pretty extreme. And uh, <laughs> some people I've heard as well, they're saying China is much more to cl closer to collapsing as opposed to as emerging as a superpower. I, I don't know if I quite agree with that analysis either. Uh, but I think we are going to see China start fading in this decade and in the coming decades. Uh, also, the West is pretty pretty unified in slowing down China. Uh, here in the U.S., we had the CHIPS Act, where Biden's trying to bring a lot of the chip manufacturing uh, back to the U.S., and he's trying to get Mexico into that loop as well. Um, also, the Netherlands and Japan, they kind of joined the... Uh, chip boycott, for lack of a better word, or chip embargo against China. And the Dutch, they're really major players in chip manufacturing. There is a company there called ASML. And this company, they make the machinery that actually makes the microchips. And it is the most advanced company in this field. Uh, their closest competitors are about five years behind in terms of research and development. And a lot of the number two companies uh, in chip manufacturing can be found in Japan, Nikon, uh, the same company that makes cameras. Uh, they're pretty big in chip, chip manufacturing as well. So with the U.S., the Dutch, and the Japanese all saying we're trying to strangle chip manufacturing in China, uh, I think they're going to fall behind technologically in a pretty significant way. Uh so all these things added together, the declining demographics, their hyper-dependency on food imports, uh, and kind of their restriction of chip manufacturing, I think China's going to start fading away uh, this decade. Yeah, because that was like practically their main playing card, right? Was they wanted to take over chip manufacturing um, and then obviously make the rest of the world dependent on them. But what about... The dependency the West in particular have on production in China because yeah they've they've got an aging population um, which are obviously due to to die and then and move on but we in the West have a lot of spenders and a lot of unemployment because a lot of a lot of well all of the production practically has moved over to to China so. Is that not something which could keep China in the race to the top? Uh, not quite, because we're already seeing lots of investment move around. There are going to be some big winners as China fades away from manufacturing. Uh, we're going to see Vietnam grow a lot. We're going to see Indonesia grow a lot. And specifically for the United States, we're going to see Mexico grow a lot and become a, a major big player in the manufacturing space. Uh, and Mexico has a lot of advantages over China, not only in terms of uh, geopolitical drama, uh, but there's more uh, financial benefits that Mexico has. Their cost of labor, it is about a dollar an hour cheaper in Mexico than it is in China. Uh, but even as Mexican wages rise, they'll still have an economic advantage. Uh, Mexico gets most of its energy from us, from the United States. We're just busting at the seams with natural gas right now. 
So uh, the cost of energy in Mexico, it's about 50 to 100% cheaper than it is in China. Uh, what we also see in Mexico is transportation costs are a lot cheaper. Obviously, they're our next door neighbors. Uh, and we are seeing a lot of investment going into Mexico for the year of 2022 for the first three quarters. They don't have the full year analysis just yet. Uh, but direct foreign investment into Mexico has much exceeded uh, expectations. And we do see a lot of that coming from uh, the German automotive sector. Uh, Volkswagen, they're spending nearly a billion dollars to build new factories in the city of Puebla. Uh, they already have a presence there, but they're growing more. Uh, Continental Tires, I can't remember the dollar amount, but they are pouring a lot of Mexico, uh, money into Mexico as well. Uh, Mazda, obviously not a German company, but they're investing in Mexico also. Uh, who else? There's a fourth big one. I can't remember. But anyway, as far as North America goes, Mexico is going to replace China. And as far as Asia goes, we're going to see that go to Vietnam, Indonesia, maybe Cambodia. Uh, so that's what's going to happen with manufacturing. I know there is a lot of political excitement. People want to bring manufacturing back to Western Europe and to the United States. But that's not going to happen with our labor costs. Uh, one of the most important rules of economics is you can never compete with cheap foreign labor. So until Americans are happy with getting paid $2 an hour, same thing for Western Europe, uh, manufacturing is never going to come back. Yeah, that ship is well and truly sailed now. So it's about what they can do moving forward. So do you think on the manufacturing side, for example, you've you've mentioned Mexico again, a lot of uh, foreign direct investment. Um, and then you mentioned Vietnam, potentially Cambodia. Do you think companies will spread their manufacturing around to cheaper countries closer to big markets? For example, Mexico's right next to America, which is a huge market for, say, BMW, for example. They'll manufacture cars in Mexico for the US market and then cars in Vietnam, say, for the Chinese market, perhaps? Uh, yeah, that that does uh, make sense, the nearshoring idea, too. And Japan has kind of done that with their manufacturing. It's a strategy called desourcing. Uh, obviously, that's going to lower um, transportation costs for the goods, but it also provides some political security. So... With uh, Japan doing a lot of manufacturing uh, or final assembly for cars in the, in the United States, if a politician came along and said, you know, we want to ban all Chinese cars, uh, then that would mean tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of job losses. Uh, gosh, I have no idea if that answers your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> We've, um, I've, I've got this, in, you might not be able to answer this, but you could probably give your opinion on it. With dumping a lot of money into Mexico, obviously Mexico is is very corrupt in a different in a different type of corruption than you would see in, in the West. Would dumping a lot of money into Mexico to obviously bring manufacturing to them, 
they will obviously rise. But is that a risk of based on the foundations of what they're built on? Or do you think that will resolve a lot of the issues which are in Mexico? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Mexico, they have made a lot of uh, advances of anti-corruption for about the past 30 years. Uh, and their current president right now, uh, Lopez Obrador, he does champion himself as an anti-corruption candidate, and he may have accomplished that. But uh, for my opinion, I'd kind of like to see a few years pass to actually see if those policies were effective or not. Uh, and he's a really interesting character if you ever want to uh, look into some geopolitical oddities. He is a lot of what, in a way, is a combination of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Um, he, yeah, because he is uh, pretty tough on immigrants coming into Mexico, and uh, so much so he's actually received flack from Amnesty International. So, Cubans and Venezuelans and Haitians that are trying to get into Mexico, uh, AMLO has made it pretty clear that they're not welcome there. Um, and in that sense, he is related uh, similar to Trump. But on relation to Bernie Sanders, he is uh, very anti-neoliberal uh, capitalism. He thinks government should have a uh, big role to play in the business sector. And Mexico did that in the 70s to some success. Uh, that's largely due to their they were a big oil exporter that, uh, at that time. And in the 70s, there was the oil crisis from the rise of OPEC. So Mexico was making a lot of money in the 70s, and they were from oil. And they were kind of using uh, that money to prop up businesses. So AMLO does have a little bit uh, misguided nostalgia in, tr- in how he's trying to build the Mexican economy. Uh, but despite his political hostility towards direct foreign investment, it's still coming in. Uh, is So really, I wouldn't say corruption is the threat to Mexican investment. I would say more so hostility towards uh, foreigners and towards business businesses is the, uh, the biggest threat for investing in Mexico. Um, but at the same time, they have a, a strict term limits for the president there. Presidents can only serve six years and then they have to disappear. And... AMLO just has about two years left, if I recall correctly. So uh, if Mexicans decide to elect somebody that is more friendly to foreign business investment, they can really catch the popularity of this nearshoring wave. And they can, I I think they're going to do good no matter what, but if they elect the right person, I think they can really maximize the benefits that are coming in. Yeah. And then it's speed as well, right? If they elect the right person, the money's there to be invested. So it will someone accepts foreign investment within the country, I'm, I'm guessing everyone wants to, like, like we've just discussed, everyone wants to take it away from China. So most businesses will be happy just to chuck money straight into the pocket. So in, in regards to Mexico, um, I don't know too much about it politically, but so this question might sound a bit stupid, but um, how much control do the cartel have in Mexico these days? Are they still... Do they still have a lot of control? Or... Oh, yeah, they're they're definitely relevant. But I think one aspect that uh, gets misreported a little bit is that it's very geographical. So in certain Mexican states, they absolutely have a lot of power. And in some cases, they're 
more powerful than the government, so to say. Uh, but in other states, they do have a, a smaller uh, presence. And that's been another point of, of criticism against AMLO. His policy towards the cartels was, let's give them hugs and instead of bullets. And that worked about as well as you think it would be, you know, trying to hug uh, the cartels isn't going to work. You need to be a little more aggressive. Um, um, and unfortunately, it did uh, lead to an increase of deaths there. So uh, I think that's going to be another thing that Mexicans consider as they get closer to their presidential election is uh, what will be the best strategy to deal with the issue of cartels. Yeah, I guess that well, I, don't, I wasn't going to ask this. It sort of came into my mind. But as Mexican, as Mexico grows um, with business and foreign investment, investing in businesses within uh, manufacturing the cartels should shrink in hindsight but they obviously produce a lot of drugs for america so what happens and america has a market for drugs like you no one could probably even like wrap their head around how big the market is for drugs in america what happens to drugs in america in that scenario Who's going to start supplying the drugs because they're quite dependent. A lot of people are quite dependent on the drugs in America. When, when there's a demand for any product, drugs or otherwise, normally there's going to be a supplier that can meet that demand. Uh, and, and two, this also applies to Canada as well. For whatever reason, uh, Canadians and Americans, we really do love our cocaine. <laughs> I don't quite know why that is, but uh, that's the case. So whether it's being supplied by the cartels of Mexico or uh, the drug producers of Colombia or a completely new ent entity, as long as there's a demand for it, someone's going to fulfill that supply, no matter where it comes from. Oh, how long do you think, if ever, it would become legalized in America? If, if Oh, Gosh, I, I don't know. I think that's really far away. I mean, we just started about marijuana legal, legalization about, uh, gosh, 10 years ago. And uh, I am proud to report that my home state of Colorado, uh, we led the nation, we led the world, we were the first place to <laughs> legalize marijuana. Uh, and that spread around a little bit. I think something now about two thirds of states have gone uh, towards legalization, but the other third have not. And if uh, the political appetite for marijuana is that slow, it's going to be much, much slower for the d drugs that are uh, more addictive and more dangerous and have a higher risk of overdose. So I really don't see legalization for those harder drugs happening anytime soon. Yeah, well, I've heard um, America doing clinical trials on MDMA on ketamine for uh, mental health, people with PTSD, I think. It's helping people cure their PTSD. Um, so you are progressing in sort of medical uses for drugs that were deemed that are deemed that are illegal, but um, were deemed sort of party drugs before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there is some progress in that aspect with psychedelics. Uh, I also did recently read a study that uh, psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms 
they're actually quite effective of getting people to quit smoking. If I remember correctly, I think it had an 80% effective rate, uh, whereas the nicotine gum is only around 5 to 10%. Uh, so there is absolutely some medical utility uh, with the psychedelics. Um, and it is a regulatory nightmare because uh, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, that's the federal level, uh, they kind of classify how dangerous drugs are. Uh, and that restricts their ability to be medically researched. And they still currently have marijuana classified as the most dangerous drug. Uh, so that kind of shows you how far behind the regulations are from uh, the potential that we could get, you know, from these uh, once classified drugs. Um, that, oddly enough, I have heard stories of uh, clinics opening up in Colombia and in Mexico where they are using psychedelics to treat varying medical ailments. So in a weird way, our drug policy is so harsh uh, that people are actually going to Mexico or going to Peru or Colombia to receive medical treatment with these psychedelic drugs. So it's it's a whole mess, uh, the drug policy here in North America. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of um, Americans going to, I, I can't recall the country, but it's in South America somewhere for, um to do ayahuasca yeah i've heard of it uh like many things it was popular popularized by joe rogan um and yeah i think uh every man between the age of 20 and 40 they kind of have a dream of going on an ayahuasca journey in uh south america um it is a a little bit pricey to do you know you got the travel prices and you have to pay the shaman and uh so on and so forth but uh so have you have you looked into it? Oh, uh, no, not going. Um, not going there. I've had my psychedelic uh, phase in my life, and I I really have no interest in getting back into psychedelics anytime soon. Uh, I mean, loved it a lot when I was in my twenties, but I'm in my thirties now. So, uh, my idea of having a wild time is drinking a cup of coffee after three p.m. Oh yeah. So, like, just quick coming back to globalization for a moment. Um, you, you did mention it in your video about Trump's um, the role Trump played in globalization. Where is what he? Where is what he set out at at the moment? Because I know obviously Biden's had to pick up on a lot of what Trump put, put together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in terms of uh, globalization and nearshoring, uh, Trump and Biden actually have very similar policies. Um, you know, obviously Trump kind of started the trade war with China and Biden has definitely escalated that, uh, especially in terms of chip manufacturing. Uh, but one area where Trump at least somewhat deviated from his campaign promises was making radical changes to NAFTA. Uh, NAFTA is the free trade agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And uh, he did campaign pretty hard against that, saying that it needs to either be done away with or renegotiated. He didn't. He did end up renegotiating it, but only made uh, minor, minor, minuscule changes. Because kind of what happened with NAFTA is instead of there being a Canadian product and a, an American product and a Mexican product that all compete with each other, 
instead we build things together and kind of export them throughout. And that's uh, especially true with automotive manufacturing. I mean, I did choose one car model that's built in North America and tried to trace down where all the parts come from. And it's just so intensely integrated. Like uh, the windshield might come from Ontario. Uh, The tires might come from Texas. The brake pads might uh, come from Puebla in Mexico. Uh, And, you know, there's a modern car probably has over a thousand individual components And as far as North America goes, those are manufactured in all three different countries. Uh, So if Trump and AMLO as well, AMLO was pretty hostile to NAFTA. If they ended up tearing up NAFTA, uh, it would have been absolutely disastrous for all three countries. Uh, So luckily, cooler heads prevailed and they did add some uh, needed updates uh, because NAFTA was originally signed before the Internet was a thing. So... Yeah, that's kind of how I see manufacturing in North America at this time. Did what was Trump and AMLO's um, relationship like? Uh, it was it was weird. Most of Trump's administration, he worked with uh, AMLO's predecessor. I'm not going to pronounce this right, but it was uh, uh, Nieto. And uh, to put it in mildly, Nieto and Trump had a a pretty awkward relationship because, uh, you know, Trump was saying, build the wall and we're going to make Mexico pay for it. And obviously Mexicans aren't going to go for that. <laughs> um, so it was kind of awkward, at least publicly. But when it came down to renegotiating NAFTA, uh, they actually got along very, very well. Um, and AMLO was sort of involved in the NAFTA renegotiation because he was about to assume office in Mexico. Uh, but they all came to the realization if this doesn't get done, it's everybody's going to lose. And oddly enough, during when NAFTA was being renegotiated, uh, Canada was actually being the third wheel. They were being the biggest problem with it because uh, Trudeau was trying to implement uh, environmental standards and that just wasn't going to work with Trump. Uh, part of Trump's core constituent, uh, core base is with the fossil fuel industry. There's no way he was going to stab them in the back uh, to make Canada happy. And as for Mexico, all the oil in Mexico is actually owned by the people. And so there is kind of a patriotic connection with uh, oil. And, uh, AMLO absolutely amplified that. And there's no way they were going to give up their oil usage or their oil production, again, to make Canada happy. Uh, And the real uh, cherry on top is that Canada exports a lot of oil to to the United States. So essentially what they were saying in the negotiation is, uh, hey, Trump, we're happy to sell you our oil, but you just can't use it. So there's a lot of attentions directed towards Canada during the renegotiations. Uh, and it actually got really close to where Mexico and America was going to kick out Canada. Uh, but luckily enough, there's this uh, pretty talented uh, Canadian politician, Christia Freeland. Uh, she was able to keep Canada into the deal. She had to make sacrifices to the Canadian dairy market, uh, open it up to American dairy farmers. Uh, but that's what she had to do to keep Canada and NAFTA. So was that solely because of 
Trudel they wanted to to boot out um, Canada from the equation. Oh, yeah, I would say so. And kind of for the tactics that he was going for, he was just being uh, way too aggressive for environmental policies. And and I mean, we can argue if that's a good idea or a bad idea, uh, but really it was not political feasible. It had no political feasibility at all. Uh, Trump would absolutely not go for that. And AMLA would absolutely not go for that. Uh, but Trudeau just was insistent, insistent, and then it got really close to the point was like, okay, well, screw you, Canada. If the environment's that important to you, then stop selling your stuff to us. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's going to be the topic of my next video. So that's why I'm so knowledgeable about Mexico and Canada right now. Oh, nice. That, that's going to be a good video. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be interested in that. So do Biden and Trudeau, do they have a good relationship? Yeah. Uh, as far as I can see, yeah, I mean, they haven't had to do any major trade negotiations because that was all done during the Trump administration. In uh, Canada has been, they haven't received enough credit, in my opinion, in terms of uh, uh, the Ukraine-Russian war right now. Last time I looked, Canada ranks about fourth in terms of uh, supplying aid to Ukraine. And part of that is Canada does have a long heritage of Ukrainian immigrants uh, you know, some of them have been there for over 100 years. Some of them uh, immigrated very recently. So in terms of foreign policy, yeah, Biden and Trudeau are absolutely on the same page. And also Canada has been getting into tussles with China a few years before America really did. So as far as foreign policy is concerned, yeah, Biden and Trudeau are absolutely on the same page. And I imagine that's going to continue no matter who the next uh, American president is, whether it's Biden or somebody else. Well, it kind of depends on if Trudeau will stay in power as well, though, right? Because I'm not 100% sure if the Canadian public actually want him to stay in power much longer. Yeah, yeah. Last time I looked, his approval ratings were a little bad, um, not to the point where I'd say he's a guaranteed to get kicked out. Uh, but he does have a, there's a, an exciting new leader of the Canadian Conservative Party. I want to say his name is Pierre Poulibet. I could be wrong. It's something along those lines. Uh, but he is extremely articulate. And uh, he has grilled Trudeau on several occasions in interviews and as well as uh, their question period. Um, I believe you guys call it question time, but Canada has a question yeah. period where uh, the parliament can grill the prime or the opposition can grill the leadership party. And uh, yeah, if you're looking for good entertainment, look up uh, Pierre Polyver grilling Trudeau and that's some great political drama. I can't recommend it enough. So going back to the war, um, you mentioned you met some Russians when you was in, was it Georgia? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Um, what are their opinions, not on the war starting, but what are their opinions in resolving the war? How's it, how do they see it ending? Uh, I would say, I mean, honestly, I think they have, uh, unrealistic ways of how they see it ending, how they want to see it end from the ones that I talked to. They just, 
uh, want Putin to completely withdraw. Uh, no questions asked. And I, I don't see that happening. I think, uh, you know, if you ever read Sun Tzu, he said, build a golden bridge for your enemy to retreat on. So I think for Putin to get out of Ukraine, somehow there has to be a golden bridge, a prize that he gets for retreating, or it has to get to the point where it's extremely, uh, an extremely high tragic amount of uh, lives lost. Because um, when you look at Russian history and the wars where they did end up losing and retreating, uh, they usually need to get to the point of where 100,000 soldiers die. So there does need to be a, an alarmingly high amount of deaths before they'll even consider retreating without a prize. Yeah. And, well, countries such as US kind of want this war to keep going. Um, I know that might be considered conspiracy, but they're not going to, with the power they have, they could really help end the war. But Ooh, How so? I mean, well, it's not really in favour of uh, Ukraine if they decide to pull the plug on what they're funding. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. And there have been some voices that advocated for that, uh, kind of more of a uh, an isolationist policy. Um, hmm. Well, then, yeah, it's pretty inhumane to do that, um, make that call. But how much... Do you know around, obviously, the, U, the US and the, the military-industrial complex, how much of this war helps them with that? Oh, uh, uh, well, that depends if Ukraine wins or, lot, or, wins or not, because at this point, uh, a lot of the weaponry that's being supplied to Ukraine uh, by US military uh, contractors or producers, uh, that's all on debt. And they're never going to get that paid back if Ukraine loses. So in terms of uh, commercial interest, the military industrial complex, they absolutely want to stay there as long as they can for Ukraine to win. Otherwise, they will never get paid for the weapons that they provided. And that was kind of a similar situation to the United States in uh, World War One. I. I mean, the this was more so raw materials as opposed to weapons. Uh, but as you know, in the beginning of World War One, the U.S. really wasn't involved too much, but we did provide a lot of steel, a lot of coal, a lot of lead, a lot of timber, uh, things like that to you guys, to the United Kingdom. It was a similar situation that uh, there really weren't cash payments for it, but rather debt. And uh, some historians advocate that's one of the main reasons why the United States actually did end up getting involved in World War One. Uh, because if the UK and France didn't win, uh, then we'd never get paid back for it. Mm. So that is... Uh, potentially what could happen here, though, as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, debt and money uh, always make things uh, worse in these types of situations. So, <laughs> so do you see the war escalating to the US? Actually, having oh, troops on the ground. No, not unless if a NATO country gets attacked. I don't think that uh, U.S. troops will get sent to Ukraine anytime soon. Uh, they are sending 
uh contractors that are technically not soldiers these are retired soldiers uh and part of the reason of that is due to the complexity of the military equipment so there does need to be some training involved so that ukrainian soldiers can use it so contractors are already there just for training purposes uh and that is a little concerning because that's how the Viet vietnam war started and uh, eventually we all know how that went uh, so if a situation happened uh, where a military contractor did get killed, uh, which can, I think that's almost maybe even a certainty if things continue going the way they are, uh, it will be interesting to see how the media and the public react to it. Um, but at the same time, everybody still has a really bad taste from the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war uh, in their mouth. So I don't think there's... Uh, where most people uh, want to supply Ukraine, they don't actually want to fight or die for Ukraine. So I don't, I hope uh, it doesn't escalate. I think that's kind of the widespread sentiment here. Do you think Trump will come back into power in the US? Ooh, that's uh, that's the million dollar question right that's now. That's the big one at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to see. Um, because where we are at the phase right now uh, for the presidential election, it's kind of everybody who wants to run, they're throwing their hat in the ring. It doesn't look like Biden's going to get any serious challenges uh, from the Democrat Party, but it does look like we're heading uh, towards a fight on the Republican end. Uh, Trump has, is officially in the race, and it looks like uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, he hasn't made it official, but at this point, I'd be shocked if he doesn't run. Uh, he did just release a book and that's kind of what politicians do when they want to run for president. The first thing they do is release a book. Uh, and it's also had really impressive sale numbers. So a lot of people that I've talked to who are both conservative and also non non-conservative, they are really excited for DeSantis. Uh, but I, Trump's not going to go down with a fight. So there is going to uh be an interesting debate to see who gets the republican nomination if i had to bet right now i would say desantis will probably win it but at the same time you know there's always uh election surprises and campaign surprises so yeah well from the outside look looking in from where i'm sat is uh, obviously being in the uk it looks like desantis is a favorite but there's a lot of Trump supporters who aren't very vocal about being a Trump supporter. So it's hard mm -hmm. to sort of gauge where, where, because that's sort of what happened anyway, right? With Trump is a lot of yeah, people yeah. Sort of just came out the woodwork and next thing you know, he was in power. So mm. it's, it's no, hard from, from our side, it's hard to see out of them two who, who it could possibly be. No, there's definitely uh, the shy Trump supporter. That's definitely a, a real phenomenon. Um, but I would say the big difference between now and when Trump first came to power is uh, the midterm elections that just happened. Everybody expected that there would be a red wave and that uh, Republicans would sweep over the legislator. Uh, and why they did have a victory, it was a much, much smaller victory than they anticipated. And rightly or wrongly, a lot of that blame is being put on Trump. And since that happened, a lot of uh, Republican friends that I have to talking to them, they kind of want Trump to disappear now. They don't think he's as electable as he once was. 
Uh, so in terms of pragmatism, it sounds like a, a lot more people are drifting towards DeSantis. Um, the, how much did the Jalalasek event um, tarnish Trump's sort of reputation? Oh, I Do you think gosh. that's what limit? That's what yeah caused another. The, everyone expected a red wave, but do you think that's what sort of held the red wave back? Yeah, yeah, I think so to a certain extent. Um, because one of the uh, the interests within the Republican Party is kind of the Chamber of Commerce, the pro business people, and uh, what businesses want more than anything else is stability. They want law and order they want uh they want it to be easy to for for things to run smoothly and uh when people storm the capital that is not exactly presenting an aura of stability or order uh so i think the business interests within the republican party absolutely uh are critical of trump so yeah i think you're spot on there so i mean with your video globalization coming to an end i guess that's what sort of spurred you to make your next one or did you already plan to do the nafta video um no it definitely encouraged me to do that because yeah i had no idea that that globalization video would be so successful like i thought if it got five thousand views within the first year then that would be good you know that's kind of uh where i had it gauged and it got over a million so and I love geopolitics. I love trade. I love uh, uh, that type of it, topic. So I'm going to be making videos on that for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, oh, and then put your channel to a bit of a niche around around them subjects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And, and yeah, you know, I dabbled in making travel videos, but nobody watched those. Uh, some of the other narrative um, mini documentaries, so to say, those had a mild amount of success. Um, but yeah, going forward, it's going to be all trade, all geopolitics, uh, as long as the audience has an appetite for that. Well, you um, mentioned it earlier, um, but you didn't think it was going to get that many views because you didn't think people really cared about globalization. But skim it back to, like, rewind the clocks back to before the pandemic and obviously before the war. I guess if you asked a lot of people, they probably wouldn't, you, you come in person, probably wouldn't even know what globalization is or why it was even important or how it even, how it even worked. Um, but because of what we've been through over the last, yeah, with the chips and shortages and so on and so forth, it's at the forefront of everyone's mind. So it's really timely that you've gone into this at this time, because a lot more people are starting to learn about globalization they're going to see your channel and the videos that you're looking to produce in the future and see it as a one shop, a one-stop shop for, for globalization. But let's say globalization was to end. Um, obviously you've got what's going on with NAFTA, but what other alternatives are there for the, for the world, the way the world is right now as well, including the fact that we have the internet, and we didn't really have the internet 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so if globalization completely ended, that would mean most of us go back to living uh, similar to how our ancestors did in the medieval ages. Because uh, for modern, our, our quality of life, 
for all these luxuries that we enjoy, you need cheap and reliable energy. You need a cheap steady supply of food, uh, all the minerals that are involved in manufacturing uh, machines, computers, uh, all the like, uh, gosh, sorry, my uh, coffee's giving me quite the buzz right now. Um, uh, but yeah, if globalization absolutely collapsed, it would be bad for a lot of people. Uh, there are some countries that are uh, an exception to it. Usually the countries that have a larger area, that means there's uh, more opportunity for fossil fuels, uh, more minerals that can be extracted in uh, more farmland. Uh, but for smaller countries in size, they're much more dependent on globalization than the bigger countries are. Mm. But the whole world is set up for globalization. Like it, it has... Well, like you said, it would be really bad if globalization was to end. It would literally be the end. Um, but I don't know if you what you know about this side of it with foods. Um, but because of globalization, I'm able to eat, being in the UK, Indian food, Mexican food, Chinese food, any types of food you could probably. And it's not just that style of food. I could literally, like we um, were talking about at the beginning of the episode, I could le literally eat something that is grown in India or in China. And, well, I can't say literally, I am, but everyone is. Most of the stuff that we consume isn't actually grown, homegrown. And I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but apparently that's not good for people. We should only eat from our sort of homegrown, what, what we're, what, because of us living and growing up in this, certain part of the world, a certain segment, we should only eat what's grown there and we shouldn't eat food which is grown in hotter climates, for example, but like bananas that are grown in, uh, I don't know, India, for example. I think you're right. so, <laughs> oh, so like in, in terms of like a, a health and nutrition perspective, is that where you're, you're getting at? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I will be perfectly honest. I know next to nothing about nutrition or health, so... Uh, if that's true, it might be or might not be. I cannot tell you one way or another. Uh, but I will say I do love eating bananas, kiwis, and avocados uh, here in February in the cold, cold Rocky Mountains. So uh, from a flavor perspective, I, I love eating tropical fruits. But for health, I don't know. <laughs> Apparently for the UK, um, an avocado has the highest highest amount of air miles on it. So it this is... Obviously, I don't know how true it is, but it's what I've seen that eating an avocado, you're actually causing more emissions in the well to the to the world climate than what your car produces, for example. Oh yeah, I, I wouldn't find that too surprising. Um, I I haven't looked into the supply chain for avocados in the UK, but oddly enough. I did look into bananas uh, for the EU. I uh, was dating a, B a Bulgarian girl for a little bit, and she insisted that bananas in Europe were better than they are in America. And that absolutely drove me bonkers. So I had to research and either confirm or de deny that. Uh, but it turns out most of the bananas in the EU, they do come uh, from the Caribbean. It's kind of a vestige of uh, France's colonial presence in the Caribbean. Uh, and obviously the Caribbean is closer to the U.S. than the EU. So that means we have superior bananas. I'm sorry, <laughs> Europe, I love you, but our bananas are better. Um, 
but yeah in terms of uh the climate footprint of transportation yeah that is a is a concern and worth something talking about and that could at least be partially mitigated with uh greenhouse agriculture i don't think that's very cost effective but it could uh reduce emissions like theoretically you know you could build a greenhouse in finland that grows bananas and oh well i guess you have to consider uh heating as well if that could be done in a carbon neutral way or not um and i think there is a movement towards that of a more uh vertical uh agriculture so that way you can grow whatever you want wherever you want and using hydroponics and such yeah 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 Hmm. Okay. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and you might or might not know much about it. Um, have you heard of the line, the neon line in Saudi Arabia? Oh, yeah, like that uh, city project. I, I know just a little bit about it. I, I saw the headlines, but not much else beyond that. All oh, right. Okay. I've been looking into it recently, and I just wanted to ask people what their opinion is on it and whether the model looks like it will work. Mm. that's something that i've noticed quite a bit with mega projects it seems that uh governments to garner support or garner popularity both domestically or, or internationally they'll kind of display this uh super fancy mega project that looks very futuristic and uh sometimes those actually do end up getting built but i've noticed most of the time they don't they are more often than, than not uh publicity stunts um and i don't know about the line that very may well end up being built or not uh and to be fair the saudis more than other countries they do kind of come through on building their mega projects when they tease them yeah i think uh, they're actually going ahead with this this one i know what you are saying yeah about. i think it got signed off a couple of weeks ago mm. for construction oh, okay. to start mm. well well tell me a little bit more about it i don't know too much about it so well the one thing which i find crazy about it is it's in Saudi Arabia but it's not marketed for their the residents of Saudi Arabia it's more marketed towards people outside so yeah or even well people within the west can buy a ticket in there and, and... yeah so do you want me to describe what the line is yeah uh so it's 15 kilometers long so it's two long skyscrapers built up against each other essentially with gardens and bridges and stuff that link them both together and it's going to house is it six million people come um i think that's the right number i think you're you'll never have to leave anywhere like within 10 minutes of each other so like you've got your shop your hospital um your Place of work will be in your room, probably. Yeah, it looks like this. Oh, wow. It goes right into the sea, too. I think they use this. Well, yeah, obviously they use that to bring. Oh, sorry, it's 170 kilometers. Is wow. that correct? Yeah. Is it from, from the owner's website? Yeah. And and do you guys know what the price tag is on it? Have they put any uh, cost expectations? I am not sure, but I'm guessing it's going to be a few billion. 
Well, I'm yeah. <laughs> it might be hitting the trillions. Mm. Uh, one thing that scares me about it is it's in Saudi, marketed to the west, but it's in the middle of the desert, so I don't know what laws they're going to have in place there, but I can imagine if you break a law, you're going to get thrown out of a door into the desert somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's They don't need a jail. They just throw you out into the desert. And then <laughs> that's the yeah. punishment. Yeah. Oh, it'll be like the new Australia, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that side of the wall is literally the prison. Um, yeah. And everyone's just bent. Oh, man, that'd be a great science fiction movie. I, I think you guys are onto something. <laughs> oh. It looks like something out of a science fiction movie is all on the line. I do have a few friends who they did kind of work in uh, those Gulf states in the energy sector in kind of the consensus that I hear from them is that that's a great place to make money, but none of them were happy living there. Uh, they kind of got the impression that foreigners there are always kind of looked down and treated, I wouldn't say treated as secondhand citizens, but never really fully welcomed. Uh, and obviously the laws are really different. If, if you're going there as a bachelor, you know, forget dating, that's not going to happen. Uh, if you like to drink, that's going to be really hard to do as well. Uh, so that is kind of interesting that they're uh, trying to attract Western real estate investment with that. I, I'd i be surprised if that works out well, unless if it's uh, related to catering to people who work in the energy sector. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious to see how that will develop. Yeah, but like you said, it's one of them projects which you hear about and then it just drops off a cliff and you never hear about it again. But it's the fact that, yeah, they've been signed off to work on it. That's why I've been looking into it recently because it's something which was considered crazy is now a reality. So, I mean, it, it does raise a few red flags in my mind of you're signing up to what looks like you could be going to a luxurious prison anyway. Uh, or a country who's known for stoning people to death if they don't comply with... <laughs> <laughs> yeah or uh killing journalists when they go to the embassy <laughs> to get visas renewed they just disappear and oh there's a special saws made for uh sign human bone into different pieces yeah this sounds like a great place to move <laughs> so, well there's still we'll one of the well. countries who do public beheading still right i might be wrong there but i'm, I'm pretty sure there's still a country that the public i i think so yeah, that sounds about right. I haven't researched it on a while, but I, I think that's the case. And I think they also do uh, public canings as well. So if uh, <laughs> you steal something, they'll beat you with a cane in public, which, yeah. you know, uh, that might be a, a cheaper solution uh, than the prison system that we have, you know, just go beat somebody with a cane <laughs> for an afternoon. That that can't cost the government too much. It's fair. They, they, could, they might be able to make a profit on it if they sell tickets for people to go and watch. <laughs> Right there, you go. and then that way we, we can uh, address the deficit, you know, you put it on pay per view <laughs> so everybody in the world can watch it. You know, there's uh, we're onto something here. All right, shall we wrap this one up? Yeah, I yeah. think so. It's uh, and again, I appreciate you guys inviting me. I, I have watched your show quite a bit. Oh, you do have a, a talent for find, finding entertaining guests. Uh, <laughs> I hope I lived up to the hype, but. 
But, yeah, no, this has been amazing. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming yeah, on. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, absolutely. You guys take care. All right, see you later, everyone. All right. Cheers. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.